I think you're hosting this episode anyway, so you get to say whatever you want. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well. Everything's uh, all right. Everything's (laughs) fine. Uh, You ready? Yeah. All right. Hello, and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast connecting academic ideas to popular media. I am one of your co-hosts, Pete Romberg, and uh, today I am empathizing very much with a famous historical character that I'll be talking about later in my Stuck in My Head. Joining me, as always, is my fellow co-host. Martha Sullivan, and I can tell you the one thing I am not is somebody who should be cutting anyone's hair. (laughs) Oh no! Um, I just, I gave myself a trim today mm. because I could not stand it anymore. I am getting my first actual haircut in like 18 months in a week and a half. Ooh. I have never been more excited for anything in my life. I am in need of a haircut, but I'm at the point where I'm like, should I just keep going? And then no, I turn to my wife, Marin, no. and she just shakes her head like, mm <laughs> Yes, and then Marin rightfully says, no, dude. Yeah. Uh, Martha, we're not doing this on video, but my hair is similar to what you knew my hair in high school, uh, which was long. I have no mental image recollection of you with long hair. <laughs> I, which just tells me that I have blocked it out. Right, like, that tells me that that was 15 years ago. Oof, oof. <laughs> yep. A dagger to my heart, Peter. <laughs> Indeed. Well, uh, today we are going to be talking about some, I'm going to go ahead and say quote-unquote New Testament adaptations. We both chose some uh, somewhat wild... New Testament? New Testament stories. New Testament stories, yes. Um, they're definitely wild. They're definitely Gnostic influences. We'll get into all of this later. I'm, I think we're both excited to talk about these in one definition of excited or another. Um, we're talking about Jesus. <laughs> uh, but before we get into all of that, it's only fair to share with you what is stuck in our heads, which is whatever piece of pop culture we want to be talking about. Uh, Martha, go ahead. What is stuck in your head? Uh, so within minutes of getting on this call, I just finished my first playthrough of a little uh, indie video game called Oxenfree, which is a game. I played it on Switch. I think it's out on like all platforms. Um, but the premise of it is you play as Alex, a teen girl who is like 17 or 18 approaching graduation Uh, who goes to a little island with some of her high school friends for, like, a beach beer party. Um, And in the course of this get-together, unlocks ghosts, question Mm -hmm. mark, Uh uh, by tuning her radio to a certain frequency inside of a cave. Uh, The rest of the game is about you trying to put that Pandora's box... (laughs) back in where it came from fix ghosts Uh, please while the ghosts that you have unwittingly unlocked uh try to use your friends to uh 
come back to the world. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some time loopy weirdness. Uh, you get to use your radio to like unlock stuff and like tune into different secrets on the island. It's all very like welcome to Night Vale within the wires, poltergeisty kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And the whole game, I think, took about four hours to play. Oh. So I loved it. <laughs> um, uh, critical question. Excited. Oh, yes. Can you skateboard in this? No. Okay, that's disappointing because that means you can't do a double ollie. In I other words, you. ollie, ollie, oxen free. You're fired. <laughs> <laughs> um... No, it was very cool. Um, you Most of the gameplay comes through dialogue choices. So frequently when dialogue is happening, your character gets three different options or you always have the option to say nothing. Hmm. Um, and how what you say changes the reactions or the... Like, it, it changes the... Um, what the other characters say to you, how they feel about you. It's Mass Effect without any of the um, gunplay and RPG elements. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. Um, and then it so, changes. So they made a game for you in a lab. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Especially because uh, there are a couple of different endings that you can get. Like there there are some things about the ending that will change based on um, your dialogue choices. Mm-hmm. I don't think anything substantively changed. Like there's one big choice you can make at the end. Um, other than that, it's just like, who ends up dating? Who hates you? Uh, again, <laughs> a, ga- a game made for you in a lab. Yes. <laughs> um, so so, yeah. so you've, you've played it once now, and I assume you're going to play it through multiple times with different uh, dialogue. I, I actually don't know if I am. Um, hmm. I got a pretty ideal ending my first go around, and it looks like the differences are mostly like, if you want this person to hate you, which why would I ever want anyone to hate me? (laughs) My goal in life is always to be loved by everyone. (laughs) Um, And the like one big choice that you can make that would make things substantively different. I wouldn't feel good about making. Um, So I don't know. I might sit on it for a while and then pick it up again. There's a sequel coming out pretty soon that I'm, looking forward to and was a big reason I finally pulled the trigger on playing the first one. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it was, it was nice to play something short. I feel like I've been playing a lot of games where it's like put hundreds of hours into this. Right. And every once in a while, it's nice to just be like, I spent four hours doing this and I'm done now. And I don't have to revisit it ever if I don't want to. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure the game was like under what, like 20 bucks or something. Oh, it was like six. Okay, cool. Yeah, so it's like that was six dollars for four hours of entertainment. Great, better deal than a movie. Absolutely, I think it's actually on sale. The Switch Store is doing a big indie game sale right now, hmm. so it may even have been on like deeper discount. Sure, right. Uh, what's stuck cool. in your head, Pete? Uh, well, uh, over this past week or so, um, I've watched the 2016 BBC adaptation of war and peace which uh stars paul dano and lily james and i would uh incredibly advise anyone who is interested in consuming war and peace but doesn't want to read 1200 pages um i myself a couple years ago began reading war and peace i got about 500 pages in and then just sort of petered out um 
but I picked it back up again as a consequence of re of, of watching this film or TV series. And I've also gotten into the Broadway cast recording of the musical Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812, which details a section of the book that I'm currently in and which I hilariously learned is all of 50 pages in, in the book. Uh, but it is about... Um, uh, I'm not going to go into great detail about the premise of War and Peace, but it is a... Uh, the play, the musical, is... Um, about a small section of the book, uh, which details with the young uh, Nastasha Rostova going to Moscow, having her coming out party. Uh, she's engaged to a dashing young prince, but he's away. Uh, and so she sort of gets um, seduced by another noble. Uh, shenanigans ensue. Um, her family friend, uh, Pierre Bezukov, um, uh, sort of saves her. That's kind of the premise of the play, but the play is, is a lot of fun. The book is so interior, and I every time I see any adaptation, I'm just astonished that it can happen, because, like, the entire book is just what people are thinking. So then being able to film that or make that on into the stage seems impossible. But this musical has a lot of people literally singing what they're doing or what they're thinking, and just using text straight out of the book. Uh, but also, it's a lot of fun. Uh, and the opening song is... Quite delightful. It includes the lines, uh, it's a complicated Russian novel. Everyone's got five different names. Um, so look it up in your program. <laughs> like It's good to be self-aware. Exactly. Like, you're at the opera. Uh, you're you're going to have to study up a little bit. <laughs> There's homework here. Now, um, is the musical in English or in, Russian? It's in English. It was. It's a 2017, and Philippa Sue, I think, <gasps> is in it. Or I'm sure my wife Marin is going to shout at me from the other room that I got it wrong. Uh, but Josh Groban plays Pierre. Um, Fabulous. Yeah. No, I would highly recommend that you listen to it. Uh, I don't think Philippa Sue's in it, but I think one of the, um, one of the Skylar sisters might be in it. War and Peace is a book that I sort of I legitimately would like to read. I'm I'm kind of sad that I didn't that nobody made me take a Russian literature class in college because mm -hmm. I actually think I would have really enjoyed reading a lot of that stuff. And now it feels kind of overwhelming to do it. We'll talk um, about this off air, but a couple years ago I had the idea of doing a podcast called Wine and War and Peace. Or each episode, we drink like... a different bottle of wine and talk about a different, like it's a book club. Uh, but you just want read different sections of the book and drink different bottles of wine and talk about both. I feel like we've talked about this <laughs> on this podcast. It's very before. possible. I had this idea back like three years ago. So if we ever if we ever start a Patreon, that'll be mm. our subscriber exclusive content. <laughs> I like this idea. <laughs> um but I, I would recommend the the 2016 BBC adaptation. Um, All right. Like Paul Dano is a great Pierre. Lily Into James Paul Dano. is great. Yeah. 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 Um, and uh, spoiler: the character that I was uh, empathizing with far too much is in fact Pierre. Um, 
which works out very well for this episode because the entire point of Pierre is that he's constantly questing about what could give his life meaning. He tries to find it with the Freemasons. He tries to find it in uh, wine and in drink and in parting. He tries to find it in all these different things throughout the course of the book. And what he could have tried to find it in was in Gnosticism, or was in, you know, the New Testament, or what have you. Which is a great segue into our actual topic. By great segue, I mean horribly convoluted and forced segue. Uh, into our actual topic for this episode, which is stories based on the New Testament, which we'll be getting into right after this break. That segue hurt me. That it, was, um, it was a convoluted and painful segue, but the opportunity was there and I felt like I had to take it. And we are back. So this episode we are talking about works based on the New Testament. Uh, we both chose things that were somewhat loosely based on the New Testament. Both of them were passion stories in some way, because that's kind of, uh, pun intended, the crux of the New Testament. Um, and so Martha assigned the uh, Broadway musical Jesus Christ Superstar, specifically the... Um, uh, adaptation with oh my god i'm absolutely blanking on this and this is john horrible. legend john legend the legend john legend <laughs> yes <laughs> um, uh, and i assigned the 1988 martin scorsese movie the last temptation of the christ uh based on a book of the same name uh and we're gonna start with my homework first um i think this will be the more contentious of the two uh because i know that i like jesus christ superstar um so, The Last Temptation of the Christ is based on a book by, I'm going to go with Nikos uh, Kazantzakis, uh, and apologies if I got that name wrong, uh, it's very Greek, um, 1955 novel. Uh, it stars Willem Dafoe as Jesus, Harvey Keitel as Judas, but if you had, like, put a gun to my head and asked me who is that talking, I would have said, um, uh... Robert De Niro, because it's a Scorsese movie and he sounds like De Niro. Um, Barbara Hershey as Mary Magdalene. Harry Dean Stanton as a uh, very apocryphal uh, Paul slash Saul. Uh, and David Bowie as Pontius Pilate, among others. Um, it looks at the life of Jesus, but it's a very different Jesus than the one that we're used to. Uh, he is struggling with the fact that he is hearing voices um, it almost feels more like a Muhammad or a Moses kind of, uh, depiction of Jesus. Um, it hits many of the major plot points in the New Testament, uh, but then the big radical change is at the end, where on the, while he is on the cross, uh, an angel comes to him and says, you did it, good job, you can come down now. Uh, and so he does, and he sort of lives a life, uh, marrying, uh, uh, I think Mary Magdalene might have died by then, but he marries a different Mary and a Martha, uh, has many kids, has a lovely life. But then when the Romans raised Jerusalem in uh, the year 70, uh, during the uprising there, um, he sort of realizes uh, Judas and, and uh, Peter and the rest come to him and are like, yeah, that angel that told you to come down from the cross was Satan. That was your last temptation. You need to go back up on the cross. And so he accepts his fate. 
uh, to be the sacrifice and is returned to the cross and is crucified. Um, I'm always fascinated by Scorsese's relationship with religion. He was definitely raised Catholic. Um, we've had another Scorsese Catholic movie on this podcast before, Silence, a movie that I enjoyed more than Martha did. Um, and I, uh, I there's there is not space on this episode for me to once again <laughs> relitigate how much I hated that movie. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, and I I forgot to send this to you, but uh, Ebert's review of or he had a later write up of this movie where he said he really thought that this was sort of Scorsese grappling with both his religion and himself as a filmmaker, where he sort of cast himself at like picture Scorsese as Judas and films as Christ. And I can hear you rolling your eyes right now from that description. But the um, we'll we'll post the the link in the episode notes, and it was kind of an interesting article. Um, but Martha, I I know you uh, watched this over many segments because it is a Scorsese film, which means it can't legally be under two and a half hours. Uh, so I I didn't I I watched it in two. Mm-hmm. I watched it. I watched most of it in one sitting, and then I watched the end sequence, um, in a second sitting. Mm-hmm. Um, so so first of all, obligatory, I don't understand why any of the people making biblical movies have to hate women as much as they do. Just going to put that to the side for a second. The opening 15 to 20 minutes were very rough. Um, this is my big problem with this movie. I do not begrudge it its length. It's a biblical epic. They can be long. It's fine. I don't even I and I also don't begrudge the idea of a um, a Jesus who is grappling with his humanity and like mm-hmm. what that means. I, I am very interested in um, having that conversation because it is important to the character of Jesus that he is both human and divine. And I think different interpretations show him at different like different interpretations of his story show him at different comfort levels. What I really objected to about Willem Dafoe's Jesus is how hostile and martial he is. Mm, mm -hmm. Like that, that seemed so rigorously and pointedly antithetical to what, I think I would argue is important about the character of Jesus that I was there. There was a running imagery of like Jesus with the ax who is here to cut down the trees of, of sin or what have you and, and root out evil. And it, I agree with you that it felt very, every time that came up, I thought that we were going to pivot into like, ah, uh, the ax or the heart and we must choose the heart. But then it's like, no, we're going to use the ax to get to the heart. It's like, well, that's... and at, the, at that point, I'm sort of like, you don't want to tell a story about Jesus. Like you, like why, why pick this particular story when it doesn't feel like that's a character you actually want to grapple with. I'm, I'm not going to sit here and argue about like authenticity to the character of, you know, Jesus who has, like, I, I'm not going to sit here and argue about the authenticity of anyone's, any one portrayal of Jesus Christ. But I, I do think that there is a point at which you have strayed so far from the core tenets of who, we understand this person to be that it's sort of like, why are you telling this story? Mm -hmm. I, 
I th- I agree. I also it felt like it was trying to sort of swerve between lanes where on the one hand you have this militant Jesus, on the other hand in the very same scene he is uh, preaching like the sermon on the mountain is is talking about like love is what we need and it it felt very whiplashy. But um, even even when even when this particular Jesus is preaching about love, he wields it like a weapon. Yeah. Like it's so Every, every choice he makes, it's he chooses violence every day that he wakes up. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't know. It felt like if that was if that was the kind of character you wanted to use to tell this story, then it was sort of like, why didn't you just go all in and make Judas your POV character? Right, because Judas is a member uh, in this version. He is a member of the Zealots, and specifically, he's a member of the Sicarii, uh, the Dagger Men, of whom uh, anachronistically uh, Saul of Tarsus, aka the future Saint Paul, is like his boss, uh, played by Harry Dean Stanton, which is lovely. Um, but like these were the the assassins of the radical Jewish sects who opposed Roman rule, uh, and they were called Sicarii, uh, which means Dagger Men, because they stab people with daggers uh and judas is like brought is is literally sent to assassinate jesus and decides not to um and i don't know like there's there's biblical fan fiction and then there's ooc biblical fan fiction (laughs) and again like i i one of the things that i really love about the new testament and about reading um like as we understand it kind of non-canonical um, gospel stories is that I think that Jesus was a character that allows for a lot of different um, exploration and interpretation. Mm-hmm. And I'm a very big fan of stories that allow him the space to grapple with all of these things that he is expected to be. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem that I had with Willem Dafoe's Jesus is that he is like there there are certain certain aspects that are what make Jesus Christ the character he, that we understand and Defoe has none of those he is um he is what the first century Jews would have expected a messiah to be which was a a you know a a warrior king well except that also in Every beat of the movie, he hates what he is. He hates what he has been called to do. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to be who he is. And at a certain point, it's like, I don't see, I don't see what people are following in this character. On the other hand, I will say I I agree with you that um, he is a very He's far too violent of a of a Christ, but I loved. I did not like the overall like decision of the character, but I loved so many of the acting choices that Defoe made. I thought he was very magnetic and charismatic. Um, so like from I was that, just kind of afraid of him the whole time. Well, which yeah, because he's Willem Defoe. Yes. <laughs> yeah, like. <laughs> uh, so he's he's properly cast. You're kind of intimidated by his intensity. Um, I enjoyed that he was the only blonde-haired, blue-eyed guy in the in the cast, and I enjoyed that Judas Iscariot was a redhead, probably left-handed too. Um, so, and then everyone else was like looked 
properly Middle Eastern. Which, since they're all white men, is sort of a real big question mark there. Well, they weren't all, like, I mean, there, you had some people of color in this. You had, like, and, and gradations of color. You had a lot of, like, Mediterranean-looking people, um, which would have been correct for the time. You know, like the 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 standouts of the blonde and the red hair were um, very anachronistic, but everyone else looked like they could have been from first century Judea or like living in Jerusalem. Can I can I tell you the scene where this movie truly lost me? Yes. Sorry, I was trying to think of what it could be, but yes, it is the scene where Jesus denies Mary as his mother. How far into the movie is that? Is that like early in or is that later in? Roughly no, speaking. Like two thirds ish. Okay. Like before he's before Pilate. It's before the wedding, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah. Or like That's... around the wedding. Yeah. I'll call that early. That was such a moment of cruelty. Mm-hmm. That I I did not understand how the movie could make some of these choices with his character and still ask me to be on board for this guy as the son of God. Right. And like and seemingly unmotivated cruelty. Other than like he's grappling with his own. I guess so. Here is a question for you. Mm -hmm. Is this movie ultimately asking us to consider that Jesus was not the son of God? I think. So I, I could see that being the argument up until the end, but the end is so. Um... You mean that extended hallucination that happens while he's dying? No, no, no. I mean, the after that, like literally the last like two minutes of the movie um, is so like. Exultant messianic hallelujah -y, that like that just tells you that like he must be the son of God. Um, but why do we believe that? Because, again, he's just had an extended hallucination where he like lived a whole life. Right, but we're supposed to believe that that was like his last temptation. Uh, and he has rejected that temptation, so now, uh, now he's the Messiah. Um, I will tell you, I also had kind of a problem with the fact that this movie did not include the resurrection, which is sort of the clear <laughs> indication that well, the character we're dealing with is actually the Son of God. Well, okay, so so one of the most interesting things I thought was that after he comes down from the cross as part of his his extended hallucination, final temptation, whatever it might be. Years later, he runs into Paul, who is preaching about the resurrected Jesus. And he's like, mm -hmm. no, shut up. I'm Jesus. He's like, well, no, you're even if you are, I don't care because the idea of the resurrected Jesus is way bigger than you, a random schmuck who's calling himself Jesus of Nazareth. Um, and I thought that idea of. Like in the context of this film where we are led to believe that this is a like an alternate history where he doesn't fulfill his destiny. Even, even with that broken, the idea of like the resurrected Christ and all that, what that message entails still having the force of the story to continue through 
was very interesting to me in a way that, like, I feel like uh, Kieran Gillen would do a very interesting, like, it, it felt very that sort of grappling with the, the idea of, like, the story will still power through because it's big enough that it must, regardless of the actual circumstances on the ground. Um, also, I just read the first book of Once in Future, which is why I was thinking along Kieran <laughs> Gillen lines and about, like, the power of story. Um, because, I... like, you're right, it doesn't involve the resurrection, but I think that's because Scorsese cares more about the crucifixion and the sacrifice that that entails. Like, like the classic, you know, Jesus sacrificing himself for all our sins, all the rest of it. Well, and that's the other thing. Like, none of it means anything if he just dies. I I thought that that point, like, not including that moment. I, I did like the Harry Dean Stanton moment a lot because it speaks to the fact that stories can be more powerful than individuals, which I think is what the entire Bible is based <laughs> off of. Yeah. Um, but... Again, it, it becomes one of those, why are you choosing to tell this story if you're not actually going to tell the story? I I kind of thought it was a case of, um, and I, I thought this way a lot about Jesus Christ Superstar 2, of the, the case of, like, listen, we all know the story. So we can, like, there are parts that we can elide, there are parts that we can... Um, skip over because you'll just follow along and here when he ends up dying and it goes to white and it's the hallelujahs and everything else it's like yeah we're supposed to take that to mean that he has now accepted his fate is like has had his apotheosis or that would actually be very sacrilegious for me to say so let's not put it like that but like <laughs> has it like is the son of god and and therefore his death has meaning and we all know what comes next um, so we don't need to show the resurrection because uh, that's not the story this movie is telling. This movie is talking about the last temptation and him getting to his final sacrifice. But we all know what comes about once he makes that final sacrifice. Um, so we don't need to show it. Also, because at that point, it's a two and a half hour film. And, you know, even in 1988, Scorsese's editors were like, you have to stop. <laughs> <laughs> Let us talk for a moment about Satan's assertion that all women are one woman. Yeah. <laughs> kind of. uh, because I no, I was truly, truly mystified by that. Like, I, I don't know what the purpose of that was. I so my read on it, and this could be very wrong, was that. Satan tempts Jesus off the cross by saying, like, you're done. You can you can go hang out with Mary Magdalene now. And then God's attempted intervention is like, if I kill Mary Magdalene, um, he'll have nothing else to live for. And we'll like see that this is a like the, the illusion will be lifted from his eyes and he will go back on the cross willingly. And then Satan is like, oh, no, it's fine. All women are one woman. So, you know, you lost Mary Magdalene. But look, you can get the other Mary and Martha, too. Um, so, like, just continuing the illusion. That that and was there was there was no better way 
to say that. I, I, I gotta by... say that that was my in the moment of what I was reading into it, while also thinking about this in very like Gnostic terms and very um, Gnosticism and Hinduism have a lot of sort of similarities in ways. So the idea of like reality being an illusion or being not real and playing with that, um, which absolutely idea. has to be what this movie is saying because I was I was very very. I was very much watching that end sequence with the idea that he never like that the whole thing is a death hallucination. Um, and I was but, taking it almost as like a second, like a parallel universe situation. Well, I think you're supposed to, because otherwise Mary Magdalene dying doesn't make any sense. Um, but also if that, if that is what is happening, why he has failed his test like <laughs> i guess the, but but, the... The, but then he redeems himself at the end by saying that like like because he hasn't fully accepted what it all means so him at the end saying like i want to be the messiah knowing what that will mean embracing it fully and openly it's like it's the dissolution of ego right it's like it's recognizing that all of this is is illusion and is false and that he is willingly and happily returning to the cross knowing with full knowledge of what that pain means. But then he's not actually giving anything up because he gets to live that whole life. So he's not actually sacrificing anything. I mean, listen, for Jesus, it is kind of the best of both worlds. Yes, it is, which, again, <laughs> negates the whole meaning of what he died for. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I'm, I, I feel like I sound like a zealot, and I'm not particularly religious. I have sort of a an intellectual and spiritual rather than religious relationship to God. Mm -hmm. um, I... In, in actuality, I believe that if Jesus did exist, then he probably was just a really charismatic dude who told a good story. And yeah. there's nothing wrong with that. I just, I feel like telling telling a biblical story, that's a, that's a pretty hefty choice that you're making. So then I just wonder about all the, the choices that you make surrounding that. And at the end of the day, I don't know why. I don't know that I could tell you if I fully understood why Scorsese chose this story to make the movie that he wanted to make. Like he does so many things that are so outside of the realm of what I feel like this story means that I'm kind of like, well, then why this one? Mm -hmm. So the um, this movie was based on a 1955 novel, and the very opening title card was like. Big bold letters. This was not based on the Gospels. This is based on this book. Don't get mad at us. Um, and then, of course, everyone got mad at them because well, obviously. It's uh, also, reading that title card, I thought of the scene from Hail Caesar where uh, he's sitting in the room with the the padre and the patriarch and the rabbi and the Lutheran minister uh, <laughs> trying to get the read on the film. Um, a scene that I just rewatched before starting this podcast, and it's delightful. Um, and it, I don't know. To me this idea of like we're gonna tell like this ain't your daddy's christ kind of thing and it's like it's scorsese and we're, we're grappling with big ideas and we're gonna make a big bold religious picture and it's 1988 it all feels very much like of the time and of the director and he's like he might be grappling with his own faith or he might be grappling with his own he might be writing himself into various characters in this in ways that are uh best psychoanalyzed decades later 
Um, Speak, and just real quick sidebar. <laughs> speaking of that, going back to what you said about Ebert's review, if this movie is actually about Scorsese's relationship to movies, he hates making movies. <laughs> right. But he's compelled to do it. But he's compelled to do so. Yeah. <laughs> um, Which might be the truth. I yeah, don't know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and I it, it feels very much like this came out in 1988. It feels like at the very last edge of like the time, the place, the filmmaker to be making a film like this, like bold, edgy, um, big budget. This doesn't help you grapple with the theological implications, but I'm just coming at it from like the more materialist grounded cinematic implications of it, which are sort of very interesting. Um, Also that like this also it being 1988, like, Peter Gabriel's score received acclaim and I listened to it now and it sounds so dated and he used a lot of like Muslim music in like the, I think there's an adhan in this um, like that the Muslim called a prayer, which is also used in Black Hawk Down because uh, it's like we're trying to conjure up the sounds of the Middle East and that's mm-hmm. just what you do. And in 1988, you're like, oh, this is bold and exciting and new. And in 2021, it's like, Every film since this has used these exact same sound cues. Um, similarly with like the costumes, like the henna tattoos and all the women and um, yada, yada, yada. Speaking of bold musical sound cues, should we transition to our next homework or is there anything else you want to go after on this one? Um, I think that's all I have at the moment. I might think of I might think of something else as we get into our next homework. Mm-hmm. OK, so. I assigned Jesus Christ Superstar, specifically the 2018 uh, live musical produced by NBC. Um, There was a brief period that I deeply hope that we go back to culturally where um, the TV networks were producing and putting on live, like big, huge budget live musicals in front of studio audiences. And then... um, airing them live at the same time. They were so fun. Uh, and I actually think that Jesus Christ Superstar was one of the most successful uh, productions that happened during that period. So uh, this edition was directed by David Laveau and Alex Radzinski. It The musical initially was written by Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber. Uh, it stars John Legend as our friend Jesus, Sarah Bareilles as Mary Magdalene, Alice Cooper as King Herod, Ben Daniels as Pontius Pilate, Brendan Victor Dixon as Judas, Eric Gronwall as Simon, uh, a and number Norm of Norm Lewis as Caiaphas. <laughs> as Caiaphas, yes. Um, and I wish I could get as deep as Norm <laughs> Lewis does. <laughs> uh, Jason Tam is Peter, who I mention only because Peter breaks my heart in this musical every single time. Um, but much like The Last Temptation of Christ, Jesus Christ Superstar is about the last days in the life of Jesus before he is uh, brought before the Romans and crucified. Um, it's different. <laughs> It is different. Um, Just a little bit about the musical itself. Um, (laughs) 
Sorry, I have well, to switch I, tabs now. I, I can say that the, this musical was written, this was Rice and Weber's second after Joseph and the Technicolor Dream And the Code, Amazing Technicolor Dream Code, which, which was is... written when I think it was Weber was a high school teacher. Yes. And he sort of wrote it as a lark, or like for his high school students to perform. Yeah, so Jesus Christ Superstar started as a rock opera concept album. Um, the which... 70s were great. Yes, in 1970, which uh, Weber and Rice released as a concept album because nobody would produce it for the stage. Uh, because when they brought it to um, potential production companies, they were like, oh, no. Oh, <laughs> no, no, no. Um, it finally made its onstage debut in 1971 after the concept album like soared to the top of many, many uh, music charts. It's like everything's um, all right, I think, is like a... a chart topping song so a superstar so a superstar mm -hmm. yeah um and yeah so it was the first rock opera to be performed uh the who's tommy was released on uh vinyl before this but i think jesus christ superstar beat it to the stage um, and it kind of changed what musicals could be, right? Like whether, whether, whatever your feelings about the book are, um, it changed the concept of what you could do, uh, in a musical and what you could do on the stage. Yeah. The, the, the fact that this has guitar licks that straight up slap still is astonishing for a musical. Um, but yes, it is... It is not the longest running musical on Broadway because that's Cats. <laughs> mm -hmm. well, and also Les Mis is in that running and uh, Phantom, I think, is uh, is in that running as well. Um, but yeah, it was and continues to be huge. Um, I'm trying to find... To do, when, it was, when it was released, it was nominated for five Tonys. Um... This also caused a lot of controversy. A lot of people got mad about it, which actually I was thinking about um, when we watched Saved for this podcast mm. and we got to mm -hmm. see a bit of when their high school did a performance of Jesus Christ Superstar. And it made me wonder if their high school actually would have done that. <laughs> well, so like this is this is that kind of thing where one flavor of Christianity is like hey, kids, we're going to get into JCSS because we're cool and hip and, like, we're into, like, Rockstar Jesus. This is great. And another flavor of Christianity is, like, this is blasphemous dross that needs to be burned along with all the other books we want to burn. Um, because, like, there are... In the book, there are bold decisions being made. Uh, like, arguably, the hero or the main character in this is Judas. Um, he's very... Much like in Last Temptation, he's very sympathetically portrayed. Um, and also the relationship between Jesus and Mary Magdalene is much more central in this than it is in the Bible and is much more sexual than it is in the Bible. Well, still being PG-13. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, I am very interested in um, the fact that both of these, both of these pieces do some revisionist history on Judas in order to make him more sympathetic and I wonder if part of that is because ultimately, so in, in Jesus Christ Superstar, Judas is the character that goes through an emotional arc. He is the one um, who has to like 
not make big decisions. So Jesus has already made his decision in this. I, I, I was thinking like watching this, Jesus is reactive. He's like, he's, he's on screen for way less than I think, or he's on screen a lot, but he's usually just on screen in a group of people, just not doing like not saying anything, just sort of reacting to what's around him. Yeah. This show is way more about kind of the circumstances of the crucifixion rather than Christ being crucified. Mm -hmm. Like the fact that we get so much time with the, um, like the, the fact that the public screaming for Christ's crucifixion is such a presence. Um, we, we, we really get to understand that in this version of the story, um, like Judas is afraid that Jesus's popularity is going to ruin things for the Jewish people. Mm hmm. Um, like he's he's letting it all go to his head is the concern right and I, I think that we as the audience understand that that's not what's happening um, but it is certainly what appears to be happening well and like if you don't know that if you don't believe that the guy is actually like you know you can believe he's the messiah but now he's saying he's the son of god it's like that's not what the messiah is in the Jewish conception so that's a bold and separate like move, which could bring the uh, the Romans down on you. Yeah, one of the things that I like about this, um, well, first of all, I think John Legend is the perfect Jesus. Yes, uh, he, he made... just has he has such a beatific like presence that I fully bought how. I fully bought him as the leader of a movement, like how you could watch, you could see him and just be like, yes, that is, that's my guy. Defoe is charismatic in a frightening way. Legend is charismatic in a like attractive way. Whether like, or not uh, uh, Defoe is charismatic is a, oh, I, an argument we he, can have another time. He is deeply charismatic. Charisma has lots of connotations, including I'm fascinated by the fact that you're terrifying. Um, but Le Legend, like, it, he's an interesting contrast to Defoe, because Legend himself said, like, I'm probably the first Jesus they've cast who looks anything like what Jesus might have looked like. Which is lovely. And also true. Um, but yes, he, he, has, he has some scenes that are, like, deep moments of doubt... Or not doubt. He has scenes that are deep moments of fear. Like, I I never really got the feeling that his Jesus was, like, doubted what his role in all of this was. But he was definitely afraid of it. I mean, the, the Gethsemane is the closest it comes to it. And it's more, that's him grappling with, he knows what he has to do and he doesn't want to do it. And he doesn't want to do it. Yeah. So by the end of that song, he's like, fine, I... I know what you want me to do. I will do it because that is what I am here to do. I don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm afraid of it. See the saga through. But I will do it. It's it's another reason I was really bummed that this performance does not include the resurrection. <laughs> I just <laughs> Okay, but again, okay, so this is the this is the <laughs> other like we assigned two media and they both end with blinding white light. And I think that's because in both stories, the focus is on the humanness of it. And they both assume that you, the audience, knows what comes next. 
So, like, we've gone through, we've gone through the turmoil, we've gone through the grappling and the self-doubt, and then the sacrifice, and that's what matters. Like, they've, the sacrifice has been made, and we know what happens next. I guess, I just, it's so much less optimistic without that piece. Sure. Well, it's also a lot more secular in the sense of, like, you can read whatever you want into it. Whereas, like, the most important mystery of the Christian faith is that Jesus was resurrected. Like, Easter is the most important holiday for that reason. Yes. Um, I like that Mary Magdalene is better <laughs> in this. I still... <laughs> Wears more clothes. Well, eh. you know... Sex work, sex yeah. work is work. Yeah. Um. Super bummed that Mary, his mother, does not even make an appearance in this one. Mm -hmm. Like she's just not even a factor. Mm -hmm. Um. Um. I I will say that. Um. I listened to this uh, cast recording back when I was young. Like I, you know, I we we watched this around Easter. Like for years, it would be on like one of the early filmed staged adaptations would be on like pbs every easter right and like we'd watch it while dying easter eggs and so a lot of the biblical like things like peter denying jesus three times i know from this more than i know from any other source uh so so uh, i'm like yes peter denied jesus to three different people because that's what happens in jesus christ superstars three different people so then when in um last temptation it's the same person and he just denies him in quick succession I'm like, wait, no, there were three people asking him <laughs> because that's that, what happened in Jesus Christ Superstar. That is such a heart. There, the, <laughs> there is nothing in this musical that tears my heart to pieces so much as Peter screaming, I don't know him. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and then Magdalene coming in. That is almost secondary to me as just the fact that you can hear in his voice. And this is one of the things that I think the actor in this particular performance does so well is you can hear the lie in his voice because you can hear the pain in it. Mm -hmm. So when Mary shows up and she's like, <clears throat> Oh man, you just killed him. It's almost like, well, what do you think that just did to me? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I really like this ad I really like this show and this adaptation for what it communicates to you about the power of um, of Jesus's message. Mm. Like I think you get very strongly in this why people were following him and why he had the impact that he did, which I did not get so much from last temptation because I did not get charisma from willem dafoe's performance mm. um <laughs> i so i i actually did get it from last temptation but that's also because i am i'm much more steeped in the historical tradition of the time and like from an uh, from a 21st century audience watching jesus christ superstar it's like yeah his message makes a lot of sense his charisma is obvious from a a first century judean standpoint Defoe's like I bring the axe and also love but also the axe it's like it's not what we want Jesus to be and it's not what we it's not from it's not 
what we know the historical Jesus would have been preaching, because uh, he was very much an outlier. But there were a bunch of religious mystics, you know, John the Baptist being a great example, like religious mystics, zealots, who were preaching exactly that. So he was tapping into a very, not mainstream, but powerful undercurrent in first century Judea that um, was opposed to uh, first Greek and then Roman uh, overlordship over them. I'm not even talking about historical context. I'm right. just talking about performances. Like, Willem Dafoe scares me. I don't want to go anywhere with him. <laughs> but like, doesn't follow... he scare you like a cult leader where, like, you could see it's like if you spend your time in, in a room with him for, like, five minutes, you're, like, sort of hypnotized by him. And then it's like, yeah, sure, I'll drink that Kool-Aid with you. Let's do it. All I'm saying is that I would die for John Legend. <laughs> so I, and again, Well, good thing John Legend one. died for you. well and that's one of the things okay let us talk for a moment about judas okay um in both of these performances we have a judas who ultimately betrays jesus basically because he is asked to Mm -hmm. yeah um which is not And and it breaks him yes it destroys his life um in Jesus Christ Superstar, very literally. Um, also in the Bible, is, literally. Which is true to the, the, the Bible because he kills himself. Um, and it is, this is a different understanding of his motives than what the kind of traditional Bible text has given us to believe, um, but does have support in the Gnostic Bible or the Gnostic Gospel books. Um It is definitely one of those cases of we have a bunch of different stories from a bunch of different people and not all of them jive together. Um, But I do think that a a Judas who does what he does because he's asked to kind of solves a problem for Christianity in that if if Jesus is the son of God, it, it, it solves the problem of how do we get him to this place that we need him to be in a way that still jives with who he is? Yeah. Yeah. Um, because otherwise your options are, he didn't know, but that's impossible. No. Right. Um, and I think that this is more, he knows, but goes anyway. Um, yeah, you, you do need your Jesus to be a willing sacrifice because that's kind of the whole point. And that's that's kind of the whole point of both of these stories is that I think in Last Temptation, he's unwilling until he has, as you said, Martha, unfairly lived an entire separate life uh, and then gets to go back. Uh, And in JCSS, he doesn't want to do it. But by the end of Gethsemane, accepts that it's what he has to do. And it makes me wonder if he had just rolled up by himself. I was Like, like, yo, Romans, let's do this. Yeah, if that would not have been acceptable for some reason, like there, there's still a little bit of kind of magical hand wavy explanation for like, no, we needed someone to betray him for the well story. I mean, um, like if he had rolled up to the Romans was like, kill me, they'd be like, go away. You're true. like, we <laughs> don't care. Uh, so you, you need him to be a like. If he's just going around saying, I'm the son of God, the Romans would be like, whatever, that's a Jewish thing. You guys deal with it. So you need someone to say, 
he's plotting to overthrow the Ro- like he's plotting to raise rebellion against the Romans and then the Romans can step in and be like well we can't be having that now can we um the thieves crucified on either side of him the the translation is thieves but a more correct translation would be like gorillas um they were doing hit and run raids on you know Roman like villas and stuff and stealing from them as part of a larger anti-roman movement that's why they were on a cross if they were just thieves like the 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 romans would have handed them off to the jewish authorities and been like you deal with them yourselves that's that's your prerogative so so like you like if you're gonna get them on a cross you need to get them into roman authority and the way to do that is you have to make them an anti-roman figure and the way you do that is by having someone betray him yeah so um, Judas's song about how, you know, God has ruined his life by asking him to, to do this thing, um, I thought was very, very touching. It's kind of the other side to the Gethsemane song where um, Jesus sings about coming to grips with the fact that he's being asked to die. Judas, in a way, is also being asked to die just in a through a different way is this judas's suicide song or his um song before the pharisees uh no it's the song he sings right before he hangs himself okay um and then right before because is it it's judas singing superstar yeah right Uh, yeah it's it's a uh angelic judas singing superstar right because he's in like that amazing uh silver yes yeah that is that is also such an interesting song. Um, my objection to the Last Temptation of Christ is built into <laughs> is that it didn't end with a rousing rock opera song. <laughs> no, it's um, <laughs> what they, they ask him what he sacrificed mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in the in the text of the song. Who are or what have you sacrificed? Yeah. 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 Um, we, we were talking about Judas. Um, it is very interesting. We are both religious. We're both religion minors. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and like for, for the first 300 years of the Christian tradition, there were a lot of books, a lot of texts, and a lot of competing traditions. Um, some of those survived later than that, but eventually in, in 325, the, the church got together and selected the canonical books, decided that everything else was heretical, and then spent the next thousand years stamping out anyone who disagreed with them. Um, and so a lot of a lot of what this, like, Judas revisionism is doing is sort of coming from those uh, apocryphal texts, or as you said earlier, the Gnostic texts. And I think that those texts started to sort of come out into the public consciousness a little bit more, like in the 50s and 60s and 70s, which is when both the book version of Last Temptation was written and when Jesus Christ Superstar was written. So I wonder if these, like, these interpretations were happening because that was starting to, like, filter out into the consciousness. It was like, well, there were these earlier in other books. Um, And then, of course, later that gets to Dan Brown and and the Da Vinci Code and all that nonsense, but... uh... I'm quite i'm quite certain um also if you just think about like the 70s and 80s it does not surprise me that people may have been looking for an interpretation of this larger than life biblical figure that felt more real 
to mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. Um, it does not. Yeah, it does not surprise me that in the seventies we get a musical about Jesus's humanity. Um, yeah, and also him sort of being a hippie. Yes. Like he, he's very much <laughs> like like I'm leading a hippie commune of all my friends. Yes. Yeah. Um. Like after this, we'll put on Age of Aquarius. um or what's the other um godspell uh-huh uh-huh yeah um but yeah i can see how at that time in history people may have been kind of craving um someone who was like a spiritual figure for them um but also was maybe more touchable Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. than the traditional aspect of jesus right and also in this this might be going too far but um historically judas's betrayal has been used by the worst kinds of people to justify anti-jewish pogroms so i could understand why there would be a push to sort of rehabilitate judas's image in the wake of the holocaust and everything else to be like you know it like first off horrible and shame on anyone who uses judas as a stand-in for all jewish people as much of the church did for thousands of years um but i i could also understand a push to be like it it's not like he was just doing something bad it was something that he was destined to do he was forced to do it wasn't what he wanted but like he had to do it to make the story work and it broke him in the process he's a very tragic figure Certainly in, in these in, two in these stories. adaptations, yeah. 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 Um I don't know that I have much more to say. Okay, I was gonna ask, is there anything else you want to say? But it sounds like no. Um my final take my, my final thought is uh and I'm gonna keep this very brief. Uh neither work for obvious reasons does a particularly good job at handling actual Roman relationships with first century judea because uh that relationship was very like both both and especially last temptation lean into the idea of like the romans are persecuting the jews and they don't like the jews and all the rest of it but honestly the romans did not give any they did not care they were like yahweh he's obviously a real and powerful god because he uh brought the jews out of it like he's got a long thousand year old tradition he did a lot of powerful stuff we believe he's a real god they want to worship only him that's fine whatever um, and, and so, like, the scenes in Last Temptation where there's the giant statue of Augustus in the middle of the temple and there's a lot of fraught imagery there, I was just sort of rolling my eyes because it's easy film imagery that was also not actually accurate, but also nothing about either of these adaptations is quote-unquote accurate anyway, so it's all fine. Um, I also thoroughly enjoyed that in both adaptations, the Roman... Soldiers were wearing the exact same clothes, which was, like, tight leather pants and tight leather vests. Because, uh, like, I don't know, we all have a strong memory of what a Roman soldier wears, and neither of them is that. And yet both of these went with the same alternative look. Put more black people in your movies about Jesus. Also that. I I gave, <laughs> I gave Last Temptation more slack on that because it was 1988 and they had some black people in it and like definitely Mediterranean looking people. Your Jesus should probably be black. I was like, I laughed and by laughed, I mean, laugh cried a lot that Jesus was blonde haired, blue eyes, but everyone else other than Judas was like Mediterranean looking. 
There were a lot of hair choices that happened in that movie. Yeah. Yeah. But, like, we also had, you know, some Scandinavian dude with a mohawk in Jesus Christ Superstar, so. That's true. Um, playing a guy who I thought for the first half was uh, Peter, but is actually Simon the Zealot. All right. Well, that seems like as good a place as any to end. Next episode, we are going to be talking about... Uh, it's a bit of a shaggy idea, but it's two recent movies based on real-life events that use historical footage. We're going to be looking at Judas and the Black Messiah and Chicago 7. Uh, both of these trial, are... The Trial of the Chicago 7. Thank you, The Trial of the Chicago 7. Uh, both of these are up for Oscar contentions in various categories. Uh, Including in this... Best Picture. Are they both up for Best Picture? Yes. Cool. Uh, well, they're both up for black uh, for Best Picture. Somehow, Jesus and the Black Messiah has two um, uh, supporting, supporting actors and no leading actors. Weird. Thanks. Question Oscars. mark. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, but they're they're both dealing with literally like a, a eighteen month period in Chicago, nineteen sixty eight sixty nine. They both use historical footage. Uh, these are events that happened in living memory, but have not gotten. Um, as much cinematic treatment as, as other events. So we're, we'll sort of be exploring that. And it's a very broad conversation, but I think we'll sort of have a lot of good things to talk about with it. Um, you can follow the show here on Twitter and Instagram at DYDYH podcast. You can find us on Facebook. If you haven't already deleted your Facebook account, uh, by searching for, did you do your homework? Uh, and you can email us at show at homeworkpodcast.com. We are, of course, available on all of your favorite podcatchers. Please rate and review us. Seriously, that is how the algorithms can push this out to other people. Even a single rating or review, assuming it's positive, uh, can have very positive net benefits for us. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Pico3000, that's P-I-K-O-3000, where I'm talking politics and pop culture. Uh, Martha, what about you? Uh, you can find me at all the places at Magical Martha. You can listen to the other show that I do that uploads on the same feed on Opposing Wednesdays uh, from Did You Do Your Homework called Love Ya, where I watch a teen movie or rom-com with Pete's wife, Marin, and then we talk about it in great detail. Uh, the last episode we did was about the map of tiny perfect things on Amazon, and I could not remember the name of our next movie if you paid me. So sorry about that, Marin. I will remember before we record our next episode. <laughs> uh, it was a good episode, Map of Tiny Perfect Things. Uh, it was a good movie. Yeah. Spoiler I, I, I did not watch but it. I, but... I love a Groundhog Day. So. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, written by Lev Grossman, whom I'm a fan of. All right. I also write a newsletter sometimes. It's tinyletter.com slash Magical Martha. All right. Uh, and with that, we are going to be wrapping up. Thank you all so much for listening. We will talk to you in two weeks when we're looking at Judas and the Black Messiah and the trial of the Chicago 7. And until then, class dismissed. red lamb yes okay yeah truly i am upset with myself because that is kind of my like touchstone portrayal of 
how like that is kind of my platonic ideal of a, a Christ that is grappling with his humanity, but also does not doubt that he is That's the Messiah and the son of God. When did you read it? R- roughly speaking. When did I read it? Yeah. Like in college. Oh, college. Um, I don't know. Like 1819. Okay. I, cause like I read it like what, two, three years ago, whenever I got it from Scouten. Um, and I, I liked it, but it didn't hit me in nearly the same way. But by that point I was like 28, 29, 30. I'd already read a bunch of things about historical Jesus. I was sort of out the other side of the religious studies lens. And so it didn't didn't make the impact with me. I think that book kind of, um, like galvanized you. Yeah, a little bit. Like it was sort of the first experience that I'd had with a different kind of Jesus. Right. Like a different way of looking at him. Right. Like, and I, I, I I absolutely think that like a 16 to 20 year old who reads that would be like, would have the experience you had. But like, for me, by that point, I was like through that lens. So I was just like, oh, that was interesting and good. But it like, it made no impression on me. Huh. Now I'm afraid to read. <laughs> oh no! Oh no! I mean, but like you, you'd be coming at it with that nostalgic, so you still might like be getting stuff out of it. Whereas I'm just like, oh, here's a, a book that was, you know, suggested to me. I'm actually, I'm actually kind of shocked that you felt that ambivalent about it. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I just like maybe Christopher Moore as an author just does it for me in a way that he doesn't for you. True, and and that's the only more that I've read, so I don't really have a lot of other touchstones to to play with. I'm trying to decide if I think that you would like Fool or if you wouldn't think it was funny. Hmm. No, Fool is... Uh, King I, Lear. Yeah, no. It's a I, King Lear story. I haven't read it, but that is the the other Christopher Moore book that I'm aware of. It's hmm. really good. I, I do... I am a sucker for King Lear, though, is the thing. I know, but that's why I'm not sure right, if you would like, like it or if you would think it was annoying. <laughs> right, right. Either I'd be like, yay, or I'd be like, this is stupid. Yeah, yeah, I'm kind of afraid you'd think it was stupid. Um, if if you're interested in historical Jesus, I'd recommend Zealot by Reza Aslan. Okay. Aslan. I'm also going to read Philip Pullman's Jesus book. Mm-hmm. I should read that too. 